Raiders of the Lost podcast is brought to you by our friends Manscaped, the leaders in men's grooming. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout from manscaped.com to receive 20% off your entire order and free shipping worldwide. Join the over 2 million men trusting Manscaped with their grooming needs today, like their body wash, 2-in-1 shampoo conditioner, their lawnmower 4.0 groomer, and so much more. Welcome to Raiders of the Lost Podcast, one of the fastest growing movie podcasts in the world, where we discuss all things film. In this episode, we discuss Top Gun. I feel the need, the The need need for speed. speed. Welcome back to the show, movie friends. How are we doing today? Anthony here. And James here. We're going to talk about... An all-time classic film with Top Gun, which came out in 1986, directed by Tony Scott, who passed away in 2012, Ridley Scott's brother. On Rotten Tomatoes, this film is a 57% critic score, 83% audience score, and on IMDb, it is a 6.2, and it's just all around a classic. It also is the most successful film of its year, grossing over $350 million that year, which you adjust for inflation is about $600 million today in American dollars, so... Huge, gigantic success, original property. Uh, This movie, it's not perfect, but we love it. It's just so much fun. It has cheesy romance. It's a little all over the place, but it's got iconic moments, some of the best lines in movie history, memorable characters, and just some of the best action we've ever seen on screen in terms of real, practical jets flying on screen. They strap the cameras to these things. You're flying in the air with these birds, and it's absolutely amazing. On a budget of $15 million, it grossed $357 million wor- worldwide. So that return on investment is absolutely Whoa. absurd. And obviously, U.S. Navy recruitments went through the roof after this movie came out. And U.S. Navy obviously partnered with the film in terms of like writing off and checking the script and being okay with everything because they loaned all these planes and all the birds to the film and the production. Uh, ironically, um, it wasn't even that much money to, to use it all. I think it was $1.8 million was the cost th- that the Navy... And the Pentagon charged the film production for using all of this equipment and all of these planes. And the, the Navy was actually very smart where when the movie premiered, they set up booths outside of major movie theaters for recruitment for the, Na- for, uh, for the Navy. So as people went to see Top Gun, they left the theater and then they saw a Navy recruitment booth right there. I actually have some expense of filming information to Let's go over real quick since we're on topic. So the Navy made several aircraft from F-14 Fighter Squadron, VF-51 Screaming Eagles... For the film and made them available for the film, Paramount paid as much as $7,800 per hour, equivalent to about $20,000 today, for fuel and other operating costs whenever aircraft were flown outside their normal duties. Shots of the aircraft carry sequences were filmed aboard the USS Enterprise, showing aircraft from F-14 squadrons. Also, the majority of the carrier flight deck shots were of normal aircraft operations and the film crew had to take what they could get saved for the occasional flyby, which the film and crew would request. During filming, director T- Tony Scott wanted to shoot aircraft landing and taking off backlit by the sun. Some of the great opening sequence yeah. shots and other, like halfway through the film, whenever they're gearing up, they're leaving early in the morning. Beautiful golden hour sunrise shots of these of these decks and everything going on, these ships. And so 
During one particular filming sequence, the ship's commanding officer changed the ship's course, thus changing the light. Unfortunately, when Scott asked if they could continue on their previous course and, and speed, he was informed by the commander that it cost $25,000, about $60,000 today, to just turn the ship. So really, I mean, Tony Scott wrote him a check on the spot. So even just changing the trajectories and patterns of the ship's cost money, let alone using the, the jets and flights per hour. That's just a testament to ter- Tony Scott being such a great director and uh, he understood how important the visual representation of when you're watching this movie not just seeing the jets flying with the blue sky behind them but just seeing this warm red sky silhouetting the planes how that power of that image can really change the way it looks and how an audience receives it as opposed to just being normally day lit oh maybe other directors would be like oh it's the best shot we can get we'll do it but tony scott he's like so he was such a great director. He's like, this is the shot we need. We have to get this visual for this moment to really work. And another great iconic moment is just that simple shot of Tom Cruise riding a motorcycle down the street. And he's riding along a jet as it's taking off and lifts off. And it's in the background. It's nothing to do with the plot. It's not necessary for the movie. It's sick, but it though. works. You just, It's just... It gives you goosebumps, and it's so important to the visual idea of the movie. Another great one would be the the, the sex scene, all that blue contrasty. Yeah, he he knew how to make a movie. Tony Scott is really one of the most underrated directors in in both the UK and American American history. <laughs> and I, it's it's so sad that he's not with us anymore. But he really left us with a lot of great films. This being one of them, and he actually made some really terrific military war type films i mean top gun spy game crimson tide these are some really terrific movies and his catalog is great he's worked with denzel a bunch they made like five movies together so he's just really just i think a legendary like you said very underrated and underappreciated director obviously living in the shadow of ridley scott Tony Scott never won, got an Oscar or anything like that, like Ridley Scott has. But still, he's very capable, was a very capable director. Yeah. We've seen his movies so much. He was so prolific in the 80s and 90s, one of the top directors working. Just great at, like you said, he knows how to make a movie for entertainment purposes. He's kind of just like Michael Bay in a way in that. And he doesn't make the most artistic films of all time, but he makes entertaining movies. Yeah, and Tom Cruise, this was really him becoming a superstar in the world of film and across the world globally. And the reason for that was he actually uh, revolutionized the way films were released internationally in terms of doing premieres internationally. Before Top Gun, premiering movies, American movies internationally was not a thing. And I actually saw this in an interview he did recently where he was talking about the premiere for Top Gun and he was pushing for, he was trying to push for a couple of years premiering his movies on in other countries. And then finally with Top Gun, he had, they had enough money behind, um, I think it was Paramount was the studio. They let him release the film and he spent four months marketing the film around the world, going on talk shows, meeting fans around the world, promoting the movie. This was not a thing that used to happen. Now it's you see it everywhere. Like every actor who's in a major movie, comic books, DC, part of the contract, they no. have they have to a lot like three months to market the movie all over the world. Like it's a, they do so much press. Like that two weeks of the release is yeah. insane for actors. Exactly. And Tom Cruise started that by premiering the movie internationally, and he would spend weeks in one in each major city, just seeing as many people as he could, getting the word out for the film, and that really is what solidified its ability to become such a box office juggernaut because it was an original property never, nobody ever heard of, and it dominated the box office. It's because of how smart he was in understanding 
people will see the movie. We need to show it to them and let them know that it's out there internationally. And this was a movie for him, you could say, that really ignited the superstardom of him for his career because he was in The Outsiders in 83, Risky Business in 83, Legend in 85. But it was really Top Gun that I think put him over the edge and also The Color of Money, the sequel to the oh, classic. Yeah, Hustler, I, got it, I got it right here. That, that came out the same year. But then after that, he's in cocktail which isn't very good then rain man born on the fourth of july days of thunder a few good men the firm mission impossible he just started blowing up interview with a vampire the vampire chronicles at that point after top gun he could do anything he wanted in his career and you could argue that without top gun he probably wouldn't have been able to become ethan hunt with the mission impossible franchise and also purchase the rights to the mission impossible franchise because he basically is mission impossible yeah he owned he he's owned mission impossible he's always been the main producer we've talked about that before but so i'm gonna go on top of that tom cruise i don't you could say he might not be the action superstar stunt man that we know today if it wasn't for top gun because yeah before top gun he was just doing you know regular kinds of movies this was his first taste of stunt work this was his first taste of action and the way that Jerry Bruckheimer, the producer of the film, convinced Tom to take the role because Tom did not want to make this movie. It, it didn't seem interesting with him. And then Jerry Bruckheimer brought him to a carrier and they put him on a, a jet and a pilot flew him up in the air. They did barrel rolls. They went like several, they just a couple, couple G's. Like two. And then when they landed, Tom Cruise got out and immediately ran to a phone and called his agent and said, I'm making this movie. I absolutely loved it. And also... So this was his first taste of like speed, like the need for speed. He's in, we all know him now as an adrenaline junkie. He's like the great, like the most famous adrenaline junkie stuntman ever to exist in American cinema. And this also started his love for motorcycles. That he had never ridden a motorcycle before this movie. He actually trained for two weeks riding motorcycles to prepare for this film. So now we know him as an expert motorcycle driver, uh, stunt, stunt, motorcycle, stunt driver. motorcycle driver, car, any kind of vehicle drivers. And but it all started because of Top Gun. You could say, and because after Top Gun, then he like he he and Tony Scott did Days of Thunder, another action heavy. Stunt heavy, speed heavy. He plays a NASCAR racer. He did a lot of the driving there. That's where he really honed his driving skills in that movie. But Top Gun gave him that thirst for performing stunts to actually feel the speed of a motorcycle or a jet. And so you could say not only would he have not maybe had the star power to buy and sell Mission Impossible, but he probably it's you could say if he didn't do Top Gun, he might not have had that taste for stunt work. He might not have even wanted to do Mission Impossible. He probably wouldn't even be the movie star he is today. Maybe he'd still be a big movie star, but not like the last biggest iconic world dominating planet movie star that we think of of the stars of the past. He might be the last living one that we have left. I mean, Leo's pretty close. I'd, I'd say Leo can. Be, is... I mean, Leo's around there too, but but like we're talking about the pinnacle of movie star, but now there's it's so oversaturated. There are so many movie stars that it's kind of diluted the word and meaning of movie star maybe timothy chalamet might hit that point someday but i think it's like tom maybe leo and then maybe timmy someday like i don't even think brad pitt made it to the point that tom cruise and leo did no timmy i don't think he'll ever get there it's uh, the movie star what i think is the name is what sells the movie more than anything leo's name always sells his movies tom cruise's name has always sold his movies if you look at their average box offices they're always extremely successful timmy 
his most successful movie is Dune, we all know. Otherwise, his movies don't really make that much money. Well, Le- he's still early in his career. Let's no, see yeah, what Wonka yeah, does. Yeah, but but Leo, early in his career, is making hits. Yeah. Like giant Romeo and Juliet, $160 million Even domestic. Even The Beach Wish isn't that great. Yeah. It was a pretty successful, successful movie. Yeah, same, thing with, same thing with Tom. Very successful movies at that same age. So I don't think that anyone will ever become the kind of movie stars that Tom and Leo were. And I know there's Dwayne Johnson. Dwayne's great. He piggybacked on Fast and Furious for four movies. Also, he's often in major properties that have already existed. Leo, he's making mature, hard-R adult films that are making easily over $100 million every time, which is nothing not even Tom can do because Tom has a higher average box office and also a higher total box office, $8.5 billion box office, whereas Leo's at $6.4 billion box office. But if you look at the kinds of films, Tom's making huge, big-budget action-heavy films generally, whereas Leo's always doing original films, mature films, movies not made for kids most of the time, and yet he's still pulling in that box office, which is so much more impressive. It's a different climate, too. You could argue that maybe the movie star is dead now because of the saturation of superheroes, Star Wars franchises, and brand movies, and and studios making so many of those movies that, like, obviously now people go to see the superhero movies because they want to see, like, the Iron Man movie, where it used to be we're going to go see the Tom Cruise movie. Maybe because that doesn't really exist anymore for a massive audience. I'm talking, like, three to $500 million box office just going to see a name. Who knows if that'll continue or maybe Timmy's just unfortunately growing up in that era as an actor. He's obviously going to be one of the most successful and best all time, I'm sure, by the end of his career. But maybe he'll be limited because of the super superhero franchise world we're living in right now. Before we continue, the best way to support Raiders of the Lost podcast, besides using our coupon codes, is to become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost podcast, where you get awesome perks like our podcast schedule, personalized videos, Patreon shoutouts on the show, weekly bonus episodes that all patrons have access to, as well as our $10, $25, and $100 tier patrons have access to our Discord, where we do interactions and tons of chats all day with you, as well as watch parties that we do. And we even did, we did a Shrek watch party. We did an Oscars watch party. So we do at least one of those every month. We also launched our podcast masterclass online course. So for anyone who wants to start a podcast or improve their current podcast, our 22 chapter 46 video lesson course will give you all the secrets behind the scenes of our show. The link is podcastmasterclass.teachable.com or go to our website, raidersofthelostpodcast.com. Check out all of our sources of content, merch, custom movie posters, follow, subscribe, wherever you're listening. Thanks for tuning in around the world. Now let's get back into Top Gun. Okay, I have an important question for you about this movie, Jim. I want to hear this important question because you are fired up, bro. I love Tom Cruise. All right. Take my breath away or danger zone. Which one are you taking? You have to, you can only choose one. Danger zone. Danger zone. Yeah, Great dude, bro. Pick. Come on. Which I, is all over this movie. They yeah. play that song. It's maybe like six the score times. of the movie. It really is. I bet they were going to like hire a composer. They're like, no, let's do danger zone again. No need. Let's see what it looks like here as well. Also, let's see what it looks like here and here and the outro of the film as well. It's everywhere. You can tell Brooke Ivor was definitely in charge of it that. It works. Yeah, it plays. It, yeah. it really does. It is like the theme of the movie more. <laughs> Kenny Loggins, man. He owes so much to this film for sure. Because, well, that's the actually interesting fact is oftentimes when movies are songs are made for movies, Especially back then, but nowadays, certain songwriters will make their own song. Lady Gaga made her own song for Top Gun Maverick. But oftentimes, studios will purchase a song or hire someone to write it, and then they'll hire a famous artist to make that song or reach out to bands to make a song. And so both um, Kenny Loggins and Berlin, who made Take, Take My Breath Away, they both passed on the project at first 
And then um, they initially were talked into agreeing to making both of their songs. So Take My Breath Away was written by Giorgio Morador and Tim Tom Whitlock. They initially offered it to the motels who turned it down. And now even though Berlin was reluctant, her, her singer Terry Nunn won over the entire band to take on the song, performing it like a tragic and desperate woman reaching at the end of her tether. This ended up being an iconic song and won the Academy Award for Best Original Song. And for Danger Zone, Toto, that band that sing uh, Africa, they were it offered the the song Danger Zone at first, but disputes between the film's producers and the band's lawyers ended any involvement with the band in the studio. And also, REO Speedwagon were approached but declined to make the song. Brian Adams was also in the running but refused to be in the film due to its supposed glorification of war. Finally, the job went to Kenny Rogers after a little reluctance, who then turned in a fist-pumping classic. <laughs> and the music of this movie really helps define it. Yeah, it's it's wild. Kenny Loggins' career just catapulted after this for sure, and... This song reached number two on the Billboard Hot 100, and Danger Zone was kept out of the number one spot by Peter Gabriel's Sledgehammer. It then became Logan's second highest chart hit, bested only by his 1984 number one hit, Footloose. 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 Your favorite horror movie. (laughs) (laughs) From an older episode. So... this movie doesn't work without Danger Zone, I think, because they were so they were having such difficulty finding music for the movie that worked. They were they had over three hundred songs that they were trying to work with different points of the film, and nothing was working until they got like Giorgio Moore there with uh, Tom Whitlock to compose Danger Zone, and then they actually got it finally made with. Uh, Kenny Loggins. So they're having so much trouble figuring out what worked, but as soon as they got Danger Zone done with Kenny Loggins, they're like, oh my god, this is it, and they literally put it all over the place. It just works so well with all the scenes, and I take my breath away, it works perfectly with that sex scene, and it's just like... It's a love scene? It's a, lo- <laughs> it's a romance love scene. scene, Anthony. It's, scene. it's not just sex, it's, it's more intimacy. than that. Yeah, there is passion. Yeah. But it, it feels it's like Tony Scott like made like a music video in that scene. You know what I mean? Yeah, kind of. The way it's lit and the stylized nature of the visuals, it works so well. It's been copied so many times. My and favorite, duplicated. my favorite reference that has been made to that scene is in oh, "It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia." Yes, the, the Dennis System episode, <laughs> yeah. the final lovemaking scene. It's like this. He does the silhouettes, but she's like desperate and yeah, it's like it's, it's like the S, I think, yeah. or no, or I. Yeah. And um, so then they they play the song "Take My Breath Away," and it's it's like silhouetted with blue in the background, yeah. blue he light. Does the, he does the tongue lick on the neck, God, Dennis, and then he, and then he the never mouth. then he never talks to them again. <laughs> That's the separate yeah. entirely, yeah, separate yes. entirely. Yes, Mac. Separate entirely. <laughs> Anyways, Dennis is a sociopath. We all know that. But the Top Gun soundtrack is one of the most popular soundtracks to date, reaching platinum nine times certification. Number one on the Billboard Hot 100, Hot 200 albums chart for five non-consecutive weeks, weeks in the summer and fall of 1986. Most like well, Some of the most memorable parts of the movie are the dangers. And obviously, like the intro, getting geared up, the planes taking off, off the uh, USS Enterprise yeah. in, in real life and everything. It's so fantastic. And one of my favorite aspects of the film, for sure. And for Tony Scott being such a brilliant director, he was clashing with the studio the entire time they were making this. And he was actually fired three times from the production. They kept firing him because... He was going over budget and over schedule, which is the last thing that studio execs want. They want movies done on time or ahead of schedule. Ironically, his brother is the most efficient filmmaker in history. He's always, Ridley Scott's always been 
under budget and under and ahead of schedule, even considering the giant films he makes. And that's because he shoots uh, multi-camera simultaneously. So he's able to get scenes out quickly. But Tony Scott, you know, you have to have a strong personality to make these kinds of films. And if you have a vision, you have to be able to fight with the, the money people to get your vision out there properly. And so you got to give it to him for sticking to his guns and putting up the fight. And, you know, even though he got he kept getting fired, he was right all along and the movie became legendary and it wouldn't be the same if it was directed by anyone else. No one else could have really captured like the tone and the style that he put on screen for this movie. Even though Top Gun is not a perfect movie, we still love it to death. We've seen it so many times growing up for sure with our older brothers and everything. It's on TV a lot. One of Tom Cruise's most iconic roles is Maverick, Lieutenant Pete Mitchell. And we've all seen the movie a bunch of times, I'm sure you know what it's about. But let me run through a quick synopsis. Synopsis. So, the Top Gun Naval Fighter Weapons School is where the best of the best train to refine their elite flying skills. When hotshot fighter pilot Maverick is sent to the school, his reckless attitude and cocky demeanor put him at odds with the other pilots, especially the cool and collected Iceman. But Maverick isn't only competing to be the top pi fighter pilot, he's also fighting for the attention of his beautiful flight instructor, Charlotte Blackwood. And... Anthony's got the sunglasses on to show off that he's that he's a maverick. And and this movie, it has a lot of great kind of Cold War elements to it, where we have these kind of stalemates between countries that I'm sure happens more regularly than we think of flying into uh, unidentified airspace or your 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 enemy your airspace. enemy airspace, yeah. and that's what happens. That kind of is the catalyst of the conflicts of this film, where first it's just a MiG that's just in the wrong airspace on purpose and they met and they mess with him and they flip the bird inverted but then the third act of the film has that giant that the great dogfight sequence where these other MiGs come out of nowhere and they seem to be aggressors in sort of a conflict that could end up being a war and obviously this movie makes light of the military US Navy Air Force in uh, war situations obviously it, it's 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 toned down for sure and how serious this stuff kind of is because things like this could actually really start a war. Well, that's why we're always grateful for all the brave men and women in the armed services who put their lives on the line to protect us. They never know what day may bring. They might get the call tomorrow to go out there to fight. So we kudos to them. They keep our keep us safe and allow people like you and I to do things like this. Thank so you so much. We appreciate all of those who serve and any of you who listen to our show. Thank you so much. And besides the music, I think two huge strengths to this film are obviously Tom freaking Cruise, <laughs> and then also the mind-blowing aerial footage, with that, which I think is still so underrated today, and I can't wait to see the new one because they shot it all in IMAX, and they actually strapped the pilots in with cameras on the planes. In this film, whenever there's a cockpit sequence, they're obviously in a soundstage right there with mm -hmm. the the co-driver co behind them, the co-pilot behind them. So it's done in studio. There's going to be plenty of footage, I'm sure, where we're actually with the pilots in the air flying. They're not actually flying. Tom Cruise isn't flying jets in this. I'm sure he'll fly. It takes years of trading to do that. And it's a yeah. 30, 50 million dollar plane. They're not going to let yeah. Tom Cruise fly that. But I mean, I'm sure he'll fly a helicopter or something in this movie. But they're actually strapped in flying in the air for real. And the reason why they couldn't do that back then in terms of putting cameras in the cockpit was because film cameras were just way too big and bulky. They would never fit in there. But now even these intense, incredible IMAX cameras, which are so high quality, and can fit so much information in, they've become smaller and smaller as every year passes by. And now they're small enough where Joseph Kaczynski can throw these cameras right into the cockpit with the actors. And it's small enough, the entire camera is small enough where you can put a good lens on it and it's not too close to the actor where their face gets warped from the wide lens. So they're able to strap 
these small cameras also on the all over the planes. They were kind of limited back then with rigging cameras onto planes, but now the cameras are so small and so much lighter, and you don't have to worry about film. They can also just keep rolling and never turn it off because the the film is being the digital the video is being fed uh, through. Um, through satellites, we, we know. You know what you're trying. We get it, old man. <laughs> well, apparently, it goes on to a so floppy yeah, disk yeah, into so a into a computer, yeah, a Macintosh, so they can just roll all freaking day and yeah. capture all this footage. And so, I'm very excited to see what the aerial footage looks like. The last thing that we saw that was just absolutely breathtaking was Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk, which was really fabulous. That was one of my favorite movies of the last several years, and the dog fight sequences in that movie were just like breathtaking incredible they shot over 800 hours of footage for the new top gun maverick film which is absolutely unheard of in terms of like how much coverage they got you can assume that they're probably filming everything every like so much in the air and top gun the original was shot in the super 35 format as anamorphic lenses were too large to fit inside the cockpits of the cockpits of the fighter jets and also the cameras would fall off their mounts when the fighter jets maneuvered on their sides but like anthony said they did really get them inside of there and and they flew them around, strapped them to these jets, which is super exciting. And back to Tom Cruise, he really makes this movie as Maverick, one of his most iconic characters of all time. And, you know, Maverick's a really fun, interesting character. He's not without his flaws. He has a great character arc. You know, he's this hot shot. He's got this big tooth grin, cocky as hell, very talented, but also dangerous because of his arrogance and hubris. We have the mysterious death of his father that's been plaguing him for years, also living up to the expectations of his father and his name and his father's legacy. He loses his co-pilot, Goose. He ends up quitting comes back, saves his team, becomes a good wingman, and helps in the dogfight to rescue the other pilots. And, you know, he really just has a great arc of redemption. And Tom brings so much personality to the film, so much charisma. Just that sequence in school where Charlie's talking to him and asking about the uh, the invert. He's like, I was inverted. Bullshit. <laughs> He's just got his sunglasses. No, I was there. I got a great, got a great Polaroid of it. <laughs> <laughs> he just brings so much to the role. And he's so likable on camera, and the camera loves him. But he he, he exudes a lot of confidence. But I, I like how just because he's the best pilot there does not mean he's the best pilot for combat. And that's what Goose's best friend, his wingman, is worried about. He's, Goose is like, I don't even I don't think I trust you to go into combat because you're such a risk taker. You're you're putting me at risk with the kinds of maneuvers and your approach to strategy. You're much more aggressive. You don't want to work with the team. And so my life's getting put at risk every time I go out there with you. And I'm not sure I want you – I want to be in the plane with you. I don't – no, Goose isn't really like that in my opinion. I think he's more of I don't want to lose this shot. He's not really afraid of dying. It's more of you're going to cost us our spot at Maramir. So that's really what Goose's problem is. That's why he has those two talks when he's like, I have kids to feed. I have a family. You're, you're on your own, so it's different for you but like i can't blow this shot i don't think goose is really afraid of dying up in there from his maneuvers because he loves it but also at the same time it's more about not getting kicked out i think it's a little of both because maverick shows in just the training exercises that he's willing to put his team at risk just to you know do it on his own and get the kill shot and be the one who engages but I mean, I'm telling you, Goose loves it just as much as him. Like when he's inverted upside down, he takes that Polaroid of 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 the other guy. So they're kind of just both both mischievous. But anyways, this cast is absurd. In addition to Goose, who is played by what's his name? Where, 
Anthony Edwards. Of course, Anthony Edwards plays Goose. Tim Robbins in this movie, FYI. He plays Merlin, one of the pilots that we see in the second and third act. Yeah. Val Kilmer as Iceman Kaczynski. Honestly, he seems like an antagonist on a first watch of this movie in like the first and second acts. But when you watch it, Iceman... He's obviously a rival to Maverick, but he's the most cool-headed person there. Obviously, that's why I guess the nickname Iceman. And he's the—he's probably the best leader out of every one of all of the pilots, even a better leader than Maverick, because Maverick, you could say, isn't really a natural-born leader. That's a weakness of him. He's just a wild card at most. That's why even Jester's like, I don't know. And even Viper's like, would you go to battle with him? Would you want him with you? And Jester's like, he's talented, but I don't know. It's, it's a tough call. And that's why in the third act, when they're actually being called into an actual mission, Iceman talks to his superior. He's like, I don't want to go out there with Maverick. Like, he's going to put us at risk. Even though Maverick's just a backup. Yeah. But it is the right thing to do. Yeah. Maverick's the most talented pi- pilot. But I so Iceman, he, if you look at it from his perspective, he's just he really is a good guy and a great pilot and a great part of the staff. And that's why he wins the Top Gun Award. Yeah. And Maverick is kind of the, the antagonist in the entire Top Gun program. Yeah, if you think about it, yeah. Like, he's the bad guy in the program. <laughs> like, the bad boy is putting everyone's lives at risk. So Iceman's generally... He's, Basically in the right, but since we're in, in Maverick's point of view, he seems like an antagonist to us. And it's Tom Cruise. Eh? And you can tell the leadership in the next film, it looks like, I can't remember what he's called. I think he's a colonel. Something like that. I think, seems I think, like he was the I think Iceman's like, a colonel yeah. in the new film. But I, I wonder if he'll show up. We'll, we'll see. Yeah, we just see his portrait. Because but... we all know Val Kilmer lost his voice, yeah. so he can't speak anymore. But I'm, but I'm sure he, he can could... speak, but it's it's through a... Bare, uh, barely yeah. speak, yeah. But I'm sure we could have... I'm sure there'll be a little shot of him or something. Yeah, why not? So. Yeah, maybe. Why not? And then we also have... Meg Ryan's in this movie too. Yeah. Early role for her. She plays Goose's uh, wife with the kids and everything. She's really funny. In this so personable, so much energy. Yeah. Really matches well with Goose's personality. Very charming. And then also Kelly McGillis, who infamously plays Charlie in this film, who is the love interest of Maverick, and she is works for the Pentagon and is an expert on aerial tech. tech- uh, math- mathematics and techniques. Yeah, and I, I love the bar scene when he sings to hit on her. It's so funny. <laughs> but it also gets a little cringe. Yeah, it doesn't it gets, age It goes well, too long. Be, way too long. But not just too long. Yeah. He follows her into the bathroom, the woman's room, and you're just oh, like... Oh, yeah, you're right. And he talks to her there. You're just it's like, like, oh, my God, this is not aging very well. <laughs> not that it was ever okay to do, but Never, like, yeah. it's very creepy. Just but, to see it on screen. But this was like, like a Hollywood movie in 1986. Yeah. Totally acceptable to see in a movie, but when you watch yeah. it too, you're like... Bro, you can't follow a woman into a, into a restaurant. There's a lot of things in the 80s that don't age well. <laughs> Pretty much half the films that came out. You know not. what's a crazy moment that I didn't realize when I was doing research on the movie? So the so what's well, first of all, what's really funny about the romance is is like, are they gonna hook up or not? Because like he goes over her house. There's they take he takes a shower, then he just leaves. He's like, I'm gonna go take gonna a shower. Go. She's like, uh, no, I'm hungry. <laughs> We're gonna eat. And then he bounces. He's like, wait, what? What are they? What's he doing there? Bow, 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 bow. And then he comes back. Yeah, yeah. Then they do it. But no, they, it's even more after that. Oh yeah. Then it's, they have this. It's they like have 40 the, minutes after that. They have the tension yeah, at yeah. work where they're yeah. in the elevator and everything. So and, the elevator scene. That's where I want to get to. Where she's wearing the sunglasses yeah. and the hat. So she's wearing a sunglasses and hat because. That scene was actually filmed well after the film, the movie Rap Production. And the reason why she's wearing a hat was because she had to dye her hair a different color for a current movie role that she was currently acting in. And so she's wearing sunglasses and that big hat. But if you look closely, her hair is a different color. It's not quite as blonde. It's a little darker. And not, not quite blonde, not quite are, blonde you? <laughs> are you? And since to- Tom was also shooting a different movie at the time and grew his hair out a little bit longer for that movie. So if you look at that scene... Tom Cruise's hair is much longer than it is in the rest of the movie. Oh, yeah, they right. also filmed the sex scene. Brum, 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 brum. They filmed that well after post production, well after production as well. They were doing test screens with the audiences, 
And they were all saying, we need more romance. We need more with these characters. More romance. Yeah, well, well they didn't have that much. So they went a little overboard, okay, I think. Yeah, yeah. But they filmed a lot of the romance stuff was done after the initial production of the film. That's interesting. Yeah. Because if they add that, they probably added some more of those scenes as well. Oh, for sure. Because they're, cause if you watch the movie now, there's no way you say there's too much romance. They, I mean, they, no, there's no way you say there's not enough romance. This, this yeah. movie's half romance, yeah. half flight flying. I think it's a great movie for both men and women to watch. It's a good balance. Yeah, it, sure it is, is a balance. It, it's a pretty interesting. It's very intense. I mean, very tense and it's just drawn out just like waiting for it to finally happen which actually works out really and well. And it's, it's a good female character. She's, I think she's an excellent character. Oh, a Charlie, great actress. Charlie's yeah. awesome. Charlie's she's super awesome. funny. She's super, super intelligent. Very intelligent. Yeah. And very but, capable. But they're both very professional also in the way they're acting which is which is unusual to see in a Hollywood film where they're just even at work they're being like professional. He's like getting close in on her and they're, yeah. they're, they're doing the flirting like she gives him her, her, her number secretly when the other guy thinks that she's like grading his papers wrong or something yeah, like yeah, that. He's yeah. like, He's like, crash and burn, huh, Maverick? <laughs> <laughs> He's like, bro, if only you know I got the digits. I got the address. <laughs> and yeah, just the smiling on the elevator, no need for dialogue. There's great moments in this film, and it is very romantic. Yeah, I think it, a lot of people would be surprised if you – I think popular culture has it as a – Bro, macho action movie. Oh, bro, there is plenty of '80s sexually charged masculine energy in this film. There's, there's also there's this huge, this is great theory of the entire film being a subtext filled with homosexual undertones. I mean, it's pretty obvious, and it's like. <laughs> You talk. It's a, it's about Maverick being in love with Iceman. Ice yeah. <laughs> yeah. How many? You know how many times they stare into they each other's eyes? They stare at each other like five, so much sweat. Five times, especially they, like, in a locker room. Locked eyes yeah. with no t- no talking and, and just they're like flirting. Looks, they're like flirting sweaty. with That's each other. That's what I mean. The sexually yeah. charged masculine and then energy. And that also explains why he doesn't sleep with her when he's over her house, even though it's it's kind of like seems like it's gonna happen. That's why he bounces. It also explains the volleyball. Game he shirtless volleyball. He can't stop thinking about yeah, Iceman. He just can't stop t- <laughs> thinking about him. Then they they have uh, they have a little breakup midway through, and then they get back together, and they're like a couple now. Like you can be my wingman anytime. That's him saying you can come over anytime and watch some Netflix, bro. <laughs> <laughs> I believe in that. That's that's sure. But it's all yeah. over this movie. Oh yeah, big time. And there's a lot of sweat in this movie as well. There's as so much sweat. as there is in a lot of. Uh, uh, Tony Scott movies like if you watch Crimson Tide everyone is sweating yeah, their ass off sweat. which is realistic yeah. you know this space is in California I mean I'm sure summertime it's it's super hot and especially if you're flying a plane for sure you're on these boats uh, on the bo- under the deck for sure and also like the submarines in Crimson Tide I'm sure it's toasty as hell in those yeah. things especially back then but the volleyball scene is so iconic and they actually re- made a new one for the new film it's football scene yeah you know, is it football? Yeah. Oh, cool. Trailer football. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. But it's on a beach still, right? Oh yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. Beach sunset. So, yeah. so for the scene, silhouettes. They, so, <laughs> so they filmed the scene, the new one, all shirtless. You know, just everyone's just in amazing shape because they're trying to live up to Top Gun. You know, and after they did the dailies, they went to the dailies. Tom Cruise went to the cast, and he's like. We're doing it again. Y'all aren't cut enough. <laughs> so he made them work out for another week, cut even more, and then they filmed it again. To and then he was satisfied with like how it looked. It's Tom Cruise, He's like, right there. We get a, we get a, we get a go above and beyond Top Gun one. Like sure, we gotta I go mean, bigger and better. I mean, it's it's iconic, and if you're gonna live, if you're gonna do the scene, you gotta do it right. Yeah, it is what it is. He knows he knows what sells. Yeah, he it, knows what, what he knows is. what we want. It's like a UFC fighter cutting weight. Yeah, you gotta do what you gotta do. Exactly. <laughs> now, how about we run into our intermission? Let's fly and take it. a little break. We'll fly into it. Uh, we'll we'll, <laughs> we'll mock two into our intermission, and we'll get back to the episode on Top Gun. Sounds good.
This episode is brought to you by our good friends at Manscaped.com, the leaders in men's grooming. If you think Maverick's jet is pretty cool, you're going to have to get on Manscaped.com and get yourself the Lawnmower 4.0 Groomer. This thing has a 7,000 RPM motor, built-in light, it's waterproof, has a wireless charger. It is basically a rocket ship for your grooming needs. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout to get 20% off and free shipping on manscaped.com products worldwide. They also just launched their ultra premium collection, which is the ultimate wet goods bundle. Don't show up to Charlie's apartment without using it. It has deodorant, yes, actual armpit deodorant from Manscaped, body wash, two-in-one shampoo conditioner, hydrating body spray, and a free set of Manscaped lip balm. So in order to groom yourself up so you look as cool as these fighter pilots, head on over to manscaped.com. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout. You'll get 20% off and free shipping worldwide. Is that why Maverick left Charlie's house to go use his Manscaped lawnmower? He had to use his lawnmower 4.0 groomer. He forgot that he didn't groom. How dare he? Our other amazing sponsor, MoviePosters.com has a special offer for you. You know it. Use our coupon code Raiders10 to get 10% off your order on their website. Today, they have a gigantic selection of pretty much every movie and TV show imaginable. Everything from your favorite Marvel, DC, Star Wars, big budget action movie, to your favorite classic film and even international films. They got you covered. As well as a selection of all sorts of sizes, framing, and backlighting. Whatever your poster needs are, MoviePosters.com can handle it. Again, head on over to their website, MoviePosters.com, and use our promo code Raiders10 to get 10% off your order today. Let's begin our intermission, starting with the movie quote competition. Ready? Ready. Ready, Anthony? We we should have came up with call signs for this episode. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. We'll we'll come up with them by the end of the episode. Mm Mm-hmm. Because that pipe doesn't go to the marshmallow room. It goes to the fudge room. That is... Which one is it? Can you say it again? Because that pipe doesn't go to the marshmallow room. It goes to the fudge room. I'm going to say Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory. Correctamundo. Thanks. Okay, here's my quote. It's when the kid gets sucked up the chocolate. I was like, is it the new... Is the Wonka? Is it Charlie or is it... it Pressure. It produces great pressure. You know what I hate about myself? I know what people taste like. I know babies. I know babies taste the best. Jesus. <laughs> Wait, a fun fact. That wasn't even a movie quote. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm ready for my quote. <laughs> um, so, you know what I hate about myself? I know what people taste like. I know babies taste the best. It sounds so messed up. Um, hmm, hmm. Sounds familiar, though. Sounds familiar. All the old familiar places. I don't know. Snowpiercer. Oh. Chris Evans. Good one. That gunk that mm. they eat. Oh, no, no. That's, no, I know. I know, that, I know. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm yeah, just yeah. saying that. Yeah. Like, I'm thinking of the gunk, the, the black chunk bars of gooey insects, insects that they eat. Yeah. Great movie. All right. Guess this movie release here. Grease. Good one. 1983. Nope. 1978. <sighs> Whoa, that's an old movie. It's a really old movie. Mm-hmm. Guess this movie release here. A History of Violence. 
Did Cronenberg do this? He did. Yeah, I love this movie. It's really cool. <sighs> Tom Stahl, would you just make that up? <laughs> <laughs> That's his name. Good quote. Every, great, sick reference, bro. Everybody knows your references are out of control. <laughs> <laughs> I should have killed you in Philly. <laughs> Dude, this movie's got a sick it's a great movie. If you haven't seen it, Vigo's yeah. awesome. Um, I'm going to guess 2007. Five. Oh, it's pretty old. Close. <clears throat> he also did um, um, Eastern, Promises. Eastern Promises, too, yeah. them too. And A Dangerous Method with Vigo as well. As well as his new film with Vigo, Crimes of the Future, which looks fucking epic. (laughs) (laughs) All right, movie pop quiz time. What country is the war film Black Hawk Down set in? Oh, shoot. Good question. Ah, man. Black Hawk Down. It's in... I'm going to say Kuwait. Somalia. Damn it. Good question. You were way I off. Know, that's way off. That's <laughs> not even close. Oh, man. I guess I thought it was a Middle Eastern movie. No. Nah. Yeah. I see. Yeah. Interesting. Great Ridley Scott movie. That cast is insane. Oh, it's awesome. Okay, here's my quiz question. What famous painter did Ed Harris play in their biopic? Ed Harris played a painter in a biopic. What was yeah. it? I did all Ed Harris movies today. Oh, he's also in a history of violence. Yeah, that's and pretty Snow funny. Snow Yeah, and Snow. <laughs> oh yeah, that. that's why I did. I said I did Ed Harris movies today. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I thought I came up with the uh, history of violence question. That's like when I said that sentence. <laughs> that's what I was like. That makes no sense. You saying that to me? Yeah, that sentence. I was. Oh, just... he was also in a uh, history of violence. Oh, I, I, that's so funny that I brought that up. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. Blank. I Jackson guess. Pollock. Oh, yeah. what's the movie called? Pollock. I don't think I've seen it. It's good. He yeah. was perfect as him. He was nominated for an Oscar. All right. Who we got for unsubscribes? Haters? We didn't have any haters. I looked. Yeah. I, I, I looked. We've had just nothing but love the past few days. It's been great. Love. Love. All right. Who's our godfather shout out? Our godfather Patreon shout out for this episode is Josiah. Josiah. Josiah, we made you an offer. You, you became a godfather patron. Thank you so much for being a patron of the show. What does Josiah want for their so, episode? Josiah actually asked for a very cool topic for their bonus episode. They would like us to do both Wrath of Man and other similar heist films. Oh, I love that movie. Yeah, so yeah, we saw that a couple years ago when it came out. It was really cool. I've seen it twice. It was yeah. better on the second viewing, actually. Yeah, it's sick. It and, really then, and then UK, their UK genre has a lot of great dark crime heist films as well. I mean, so, Guy Ritchie in general yes. just like really infused all that into yeah, that Yeah, so we're going to do a, we're gonna put together a really cool list and make an awesome personal bonus episode for you, Josiah. And thank you so much once again for being a Godfather patron. We're happy to have you on board. You are supporting the show. Keeping the lights on for us. James and I support, appreciate you so much. So, so much. All right. Hopefully we'll see you at the next watch party. Heck yeah. On this day in film history, today is May 23rd. In 1922, Walt Disney incorporates his first film company called Laugh-O-Gram Films. In 1980, The Shining is released. In 1984, Indiana Jones in the Temple of Dune premieres at Cannes Film Festival. <laughs> I'm sorry, it opens in the U.S., sorry. Okay. And then 1984, Once Upon a Time in America premieres at okay, the Cannes Festival. Okay, I was Festival. like, that's a funny movie to play, I can't. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in 1985, President Ronald Reagan awards Jimmy Stewart 
the Presidential Medal of Freedom and promotes him to Major General on the retired list. Jimmy Stewart actually entered the Army as a private mm-hmm. and at the end of World War II was a colonel in the Army Air Corps. He's fully decorated as a result of 20 combat missions. He flew over Germany as leader of a squadron of B-24s. Among the medals he was awarded were two distinguished flying crosses and the Croix de Guerre. And distinguished flying crosses are no jokes. That, These are war heroes. That means like yeah. you done, did something very brave in combat, which is crazy. Crazy! I didn't know that about Jimmy Stewart. That's why he like he was more became more famous as he was older because he spent so much time in the army. There's actually a lot of American celebrities that were in the U.S. Navy uh, flying uh, jets, which uh, we'll get into oh, a cool. little bit. Uh, 1994 at the 47th Cannes Film Festival, Pulp Fiction wins the Palme d'Or. In 1997, The Lost World Jurassic Park is released. 2003, Bruce Almighty and Manic are released. And happy birthday to the late Douglas Fairbanks, the great silent film star, Josh Cooley and Ryan Coogler. My streaming recommendation for today is The Adjustment Bureau, which just came on to Hulu. It's a really cool, underrated Emily Blunt, Matt Damon film. It has a really interesting concept. It's not a perfect movie, but I think it was just very intriguing and a lot of fun, and I'd never seen anything like it before, so I recommend you check that out, The Adjustment Bureau. My streaming recommendation is Bottle Rocket, which just got put on HBO Max this a week ago. It is uh, Wes Anderson's first film. Excellent choice. So fun. And next, we'd like to wish a very special happy anniversary to our fans, Kalisa and Indiana. They've been together for several years now, and today is their anniversary. We're so happy for you two, and we're glad to hear that you're enjoying our show And we hope you have a wonderful day today. So again, happy anniversary to Kalisa and Indiana. I have some, uh, getting back to the episode, I have a ton of great fun trivia facts I think uh, everyone will get a kick out of. I also have tons of great facts and stuff. So how about you start with yours? Because mine are more centered around the U.S. Navy and Air Force and differences between them and what happened. Oh, gotcha. Cool. I'll do the movie stuff first. All right, cool. Let's get into it because there's a lot of fun stuff to talk about because the plot is very simple. We all know what happens in the story. We'll get to that a little bit. But It's not not winning an Oscar for a screenplay. Yeah, 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 but it's it's a classic though. Okay, so the real Top Gun school actually imposes a $5 fine to any staff member that quotes the film Top Gun. So it's against the rules to even quote the movie. When ch- the students are being briefed by Charlie in the hangar, and Maverick explains why he, how he flipped the bird inverted, right then, Val Kilmer as Eifman coughs bullshit, and the guys laugh behind him. That line was actually ad-libbed by Val Kilmer, and everyone's reactions in the scene were genuine because they did not know that he was going to be doing that. Speaking of Val Kilmer... He did not want to be in this film, but he was forced by contractual obligations with the studio to play Iceman in Top Gun. Ironically, it became one of the most iconic roles for his career. The Pentagon charged Paramount Pictures a total of $1.8 million to use all of their planes and aircraft carriers for the film, which seems like it's pretty cheap for all the carriers and planes. Um, I think that being allowing the Pentagon to oversee the script and approve it Maybe is why they got such a reduced price. That's my guess. Yeah, because the Navy was actually involved with the script. Obviously, they had to sign off and approve it. And actually, the producers wanted the assistance of the U.S. Navy in the production of the film. The Navy was influential in relation to script approval, which resulted in changes being made. The opening dogfight was moved to international waters waters as opposed to Cuba. The language was toned down, and a scene that involved a crash on the deck 
of an aircraft carrier was also scrapped. Maverick's love interest was also changed from a free female enlisted member of the Navy to a civilian contractor, which is what Charlie is in the film with the Navy, due to the U.S. military's prohibition of fraternization between officers and enlisted personnel. The Charlie character also replaced an aerobics instructor from an early draft as a love interest for Maverick, <laughs> which that, this works so much yeah. better than that. After producers were introduced to Christine Fox, a civilian mathematician employed by the Center for Naval Analysis as a specialist in maritime air superiority, developing tactics for aircraft carrier defense. The Navy also authorized two real missile shots to be filmed for the movie. You can clearly pick these two shots because from they were filmed from several different angles, which the filmmakers used in the, in the edit to make it seem like there were more shots like that fired. Um, and, and in fact, because the filmmaking of the miniatures and miniature rockets were so realistic, that's what they used for all the other shots. It's all miniature jets and miniature little missiles being flown across the air. Uh, the Pentagon was actually fooled, and they did an investigation into the film to make sure they didn't fire more than two missiles while, ma- while making the movie. So they fooled the actual Pentagon. After the car chase, when Charlie tells Maverick that she didn't want anyone to find out that she was falling for him, Maverick, Maverick was supposed to have a line to say. However, Tom Cruise forgot that line in the middle of the scene and improvised kissing Miguelis instead of saying the line. Tony Scott liked the moment so much that he left the scene just like that. Paramount Pictures commissioned Grumman, the makers of the famous F-14, to develop and install special camera mounts upon the planes. This allowed the filmmakers to use real aerial point-of-view footage for the Tomcats in flight. All of Maverick's stunt flying in the film was done by Scott Altman, who later went on to become a notable astronaut. Top Gun caused a gigantic jump in the sale of Ray-Bans. The retro-inspired sunglasses have come in and out of fashion since they were introduced in 1937. I did not know they were that old. But in 1986, the brand was definitely in style, the year of this movie's release. Sales for Ray-Ban's aviator sunglasses jumped over 40% after the premiere of this movie. Awesome. So I have a bunch of information that I've always just been curious about whenever I watch this movie or whenever I watch movies that have, like, U.S. Air Force or U.S. Navy and jets and everything involved. So now, what is Top Gun? Does it exist? Is it real? Did they make it up for the film? Top Gun is a nickname for what began as the United States Navy Fighter Weapons School and is now known as the United States Navy Strike Fighter Tactics Instructor Program, formerly located at Marine Corps Air Station Miramar in California. Top Gun is now located at Naval Air Station Fallon, Nevada. And obviously in this film... Maverick and Goose, they're already pilots and they're already working on a ship and everything. And the reason why they go to Marymar is because they're learning more advanced tactics for dogfighting, which the uh, the superior officers explain were lost at the beginning of the Vietnam War when pilots were, were depending more on missiles. They went from going 12 to 1 in combat of killing to, kills to their own losses to more of a 3 to 1 ratio at the beginning of Vietnam to then, then back to 12 to 1 ratio because of the increase in tactical knowledge of pilots. So that's the whole point of Top Gun is to teach dogfighting tactics basically. Oh, very cool. And now, I always wondered, what is the the pilot, the person in the back seat of the jets? What are they doing? They're obviously not flying. And so all aircraft have one pilot, though some have two crew members. The backseat crew member is not a pilot, but often either a radar intercept officer for the U.S. Navy 
or in the U.S. Air Force is a navigator weapon system officer or in flight instructor. It depends on the plane and the service. For example, in a trainer jet, the person in the back is the instructor. And in U.S. Air Force combat fighter, they could be a weapon system officer, like I said, or also an electronic warfare episode, which is EWO. In the Navy, they could be a radar intercept officer, RIO, for fighters like the F-4, F-14, Navigator Bombardier for attack planes, ECMO, CEAD aircraft, or in the F-18 at WSO. I don't think anyone knows what I'm saying right now. No, not at all. <laughs> now, <laughs> what's the difference between the U.S. Navy and the U.S. Air Force? And this is thanks to Hill Aerospace Museum for the following information. This is actually pretty interesting stuff. So as the United States Air Force defends the skies, the U.S. Navy ensures freedom of the seas through naval, naval aviation. With more than 5,300 aircraft, the U.S. Air Force is the largest air aviation force in the world, followed by the U.S. Navy's fleet of approximately 3,700 aircraft. So we dominate the skies. Basically. Yeah. But that's why... It's the, like having the biggest Navy back in ancient times. Exactly. That's yeah. why the U.S. Navy has jets and these these giant ships with all these jets because they are, like I said, uh, ensuring freedom in, in the... through Because the ocean's huge. The ocean's the enormous. The ocean's gigantic. And there's only yeah. so far that jets can travel. Yeah. Now, the structural difference is one of the dif biggest differences between the Air Force and Navy planes, especially significant when it comes to taking off and landing at sea, in addition to requiring extensive training and skill on behalf of the pilots. These more challenging landings on aircraft carriers require Navy pilots to have heavier-duty landing gear, wheels, brakes, and tires. The fuselage also needs to be larger, as landing on a moving target like an aircraft carrier can be a violent affair with very little margin for error. An F-35 takeoff from an aircraft carrier requires a catapult force that goes from 0 to 170 miles per hour in just 2.5 seconds, which wow. is insane. That's fast. And so the U.S. Navy, they purchased their first airplane on May 8th, 1911. And then the world in aviation completely changed. By the time they were the United States was entering World War One, the Navy had only one operating air station, 54 aircraft, and 48 available aviators. Like I said, right now, the U.S. Navy is the second largest force, largest air force in the world with 3,700 ships, and the U.S. Air Force is number one at 5,200 ships, which is wild. Now, several U.S. presidents were also naval aviators. During World War II, a young president President Gerald Ford was a navigator serving in the Navy as an ensign aboard the USS Monterey, as well as an instructor for the Navy's aviation cadet training program in North Carolina. And also President George H.W. Bush also served in the military during World War II as a young 18-year-old Navy pilot at the time. Bush was one of the youngest naval aviators to serve during the war. He was also one of the most boldest, he was also one of the boldest flyers, earning the Distinguished Flying Cross and three air medals for some of them his missions while flying the TBM Avenger torpedo bomber from the carrier USS San Jacinto. Also, the Navy and NASA have had a massive relationship over the last 50 to 60 years. American astronaut and aeronautical engineer Neil Armstrong was a naval aviator before he became the first man to ever set foot on the moon. Armstrong served in the Navy in the Korean War, during which he flew 78 combat missions. Many Navy pilots have followed in Armstrong's footsteps and have become astronauts, and today many current or former Navy pilots are members of NASA crews. Which Very is pretty cool. fascinating. Obviously, that movie First Man that Damien Chazelle made, I love because it's based on the book, the biography of Neil Armstrong. He really showcased how 
all these pilots were testing, you know, atmospheric science and they were doing all their experiments up there. And that's really what was the, the start of NASA. But also he paid homage to the many lives that were lost of these jet these these pilots and these engineers that crashed and died during all these testing sequences as Navy pilots and engineers. Yeah. And this film, as big as it was for Tom Cruise, like I said, he passed on the role. And a lot of other major actors also passed. So John Travolta was the first person approached to play Maverick, and he turned it down immediately, did not want to do it. Other major actors who turned down Maverick were Patrick Swayze, Emilio Estevez, the mighty duckling, man, I'm telling you. <laughs> Nick Cage, John Cusack, Matthew Broderick, Sean Penn, Michael J. Fox, Scott Bale, and Tom Hanks. Every one of them passed on Top Gun, showing no interest in the aviator film. Then Tom Cruise eventually said yes to it after taking a flight on a jet. The inspiration for Top Gun was an article called Top Guns by Ewan Yone from the May 1983 issue of California Magazine, which featured aerial photography by then-Lieutenant Commander Charles Heater Heatley. And it was actually this town, uh, the air station uh, Miramar in San Diego, self-nicknamed as Fighter Town. Really cool. And a ton of screenwriters turned down the project, and then Bruckheimer and Simpson got involved, and they hired Jack Epps and Jim Cash to write the first draft of the script. And I'm very excited to see the new film, aside from the filmmaking in Tom, but the new cast, especially Miles Teller, because Miles Teller is playing the son of Goose. And you can tell from the trailer that he kind of has resentment towards Maverick, maybe blaming him for his father's death and that's one of the biggest conflicts for Maverick in this film probably the big the biggest co conflict was is it my fault that Goose died because that that training mission went kind of awry and yes it was an accident with the malfunction of the train of the of the plane's top not opening completely correctly and Goose bumping into that but also could Maverick have prevented any of it ever happening he's eventually deemed innocent by the by the uh, court but still, he blames himself for the loss of his best friend, and that is very difficult for him and really fills him with despair leading into the third act. Yeah, I think he—I don't think if that will be a huge plot point of the film because it seems to be he, he accepted that and— Well, no, I'm talking Miles Teller doesn't accept it. Oh, okay, I got you, got you, Like gotcha. Maverick by, this, by Top Gun Maverick, he's, he under, he, I think he's lived past yeah, that. Yeah, it was like an anomaly what yeah, happened to their, exactly. their plane. Yeah. They were spinning out of control. There's nothing that could have happened. It's amazing that even just one person survived in that incident. Obviously, Goose hits his head on the uh, from the ejector. Yeah. There, there was, what was yeah. it? There was an issue with the ejector or yeah, something it, like the, that. The, it didn't pop up fast enough so that when he was ejected, yeah. he just slammed right into the top. Yeah, and he cried. He got Chris head yeah. slammed right so into Miles it. So Miles Teller's character, I think he's going to kind of maybe have blame on Maverick for it. Well, I'm sure he's heard stories about yeah. Maverick coming up and, you know, Iceman didn't like Maverick and their their rivalry. It's actually really good because, like we said, Iceman's actually the most cool-headed and, and like, logical, great, great logical yeah. good leader and pilot in this crew. And he's, like, the ones, like, I don't like you because you're dangerous. But when you watch this for the first time, you're like, F you, Iceman. That guy's an asshole. Maverick's the man. He's it's so like, cool. He like, wears sunglasses. But he is dangerous. He, yeah. is, he is a risk to fly with. That's why they're like, would you want him in battle? Like, I don't know. He's great. He's very talented. Some of the best flying I've ever seen. But also, he could cause people to die he could get people killed he seems like he needs to have a great wingman but even if even with a great wingman like goose goose can't even rein maverick in at all he he still like he causes them to almost get kicked out of uh Miramar during the film well the cause the cause of his risky behavior is the past of his father 
his father died, and so he has this chip on his shoulder. Doesn't he? Doesn't any? Uh, obviously, the we find out from a superior what really happened. His father was a war hero, but leading up to that, uh, Maverick is trying to prove himself. That's why he's so risky. He's always just trying to show I'm the best. I'm the man. I'm the top dog. Nobody's better at flying than I am. I have to do this. And so when it's re- when it's revealed to him by his superior what really happened to his father, that moment of catharsis and acceptance is what allows Maverick to accept himself as I don't have to be the number one guy. I don't have to be top dog. I need to help my country and help my team and protect my my other airmen and women. And so that's why when, when the third act happens and that great mission happens, he's able to be an excellent wingman for Iceman and they work together to destroy the threat. And you could argue that Charlie's the most important character for Maverick because Maverick quits after the death of Goose. He tries to fly a few times, but he can't. He, he gets cold feet pretty much. And he has to turn back and he can't complete his testing and his training and his missions. And so he quits. He gives up. And it's not until Charlie, you know, they, they had a relationship at this point, and then he just disappears, and he's and she got the job in Washington, so she's about to move away, but she finds him at the bar. What I like about Maverick, though, is, like, you think he's, like, drowning in his sorrows, drinking alcohol, but he's just drinking ice water. But, um, so he's feeling everything, and he's feeling everything too much, and he can't accept it. And he, like Anthony said earlier, he, he blames himself for Goose's death, even though it a thousand percent wasn't his fault. He still feels responsible for what happened to Goose. But Charlie's the one that really sparks him to come back. He says, she says, she's basically like, so this is it? You're just gonna quit? Like, I know you, you're not happy unless you're going Mach 2 with your hair on fire. Look at you, you're a goddamn mess. You need to get back up in the sky. Your team needs you, your country needs you. You're one of the most talented pilots we have and that I've ever seen in my entire life. And so this is just it. You're just going to give up and quit. Well, see you later. Have a nice life. And then he goes to see Viper and Viper tells him the truth of what happened to his father and with the classified information about the mysterious death that was always haunting Maverick in his past and trying to live up to the legacy of his name and his father's name. So I think Charlie's such a great and integral figure in the film to bring Maverick back to the air. Absolutely. It's both Viper and Charlie. That's what gets him over the edge to return to his former self and regain his confidence. And I love the final dogfight. It's soul pulse pounding. And also, sorry, not just to gain his confidence, but to also now become a good, good wingman, wingman because yeah. he doesn't abandon Iceman. He's like, I'm yeah. not leaving my wingman this yeah. time. Yeah, and he's he's he and Iceman, they both get a kill. And it's it's not just Maverick doing the job by himself. They work together, and they manage to ki- they take down two birds and also scare off the other two, and they fly away. I think he, Maverick takes down a couple more. Does he, he take I think mo- he takes two or three down. Oh, no, oh I think you're he right. He comes yeah. in and messes yeah, dudes right, up. You're right. Yeah. He really does mess them up. Yeah. But, you know, and because earlier Iceman's like, "Who? what team are you on, man? Like, what? what is this just you against the world? We're, we're on the same side, and this is how you're going to act in the locker room. But Iceman really is a good guy, and he even he even says sorry to Maverick in the locker after room Goose after dies. Goose's death yeah. because cause everyone liked Goose. And it, it's just he seems like a good guy. And I, he I'm seems happy. like a bully at first glance, yeah. but he's not. It's just it's just necessary for the script. Yeah, exactly. Because he needs he needs he need a, conflict. They're just rivals. Yeah, they're not. Rivals. He's not really a bully. Yeah. If you if you watch the film, he just they're just two cocky guys. They both think they're the best. And like, what's the first thing Maverick does in the first class of Marimar? He's looking around the room. He says to Goose, "Who do you think's the best? Yeah. Who's the best?" Mm-hmm. And he thinks it's himself. He's a great character. They both are. Yeah, yeah. Maverick's an excellent character, and I can't wait to see how he's changed. Because what I love about the movie is because because he has gone through transformation. Maverick, at the end of the film, he doesn't decide to continue being a fire pilot. What's he decide? He wants to go back and teach 
at Top Gun. Well, because not, no, because he, he could do any job he wants and he can continue whatever doing anything he wants. But what's he do? He decides he wants to go back and teach students. I don't. I don't think he's going back by choice. Remember, in the when you watch the trailer, um, he's like. He's like, I, I didn't expect to get invited back, and then they're like, "Oh, it's called orders, Maverick." So he, I don't think. No, he... I think there's just a lot of stuff over the three decades since oh, the end we'll of this out. movie. We'll find but out. We'll find out. But I look at the end of this film as not even not talking about the new film. Oh, the end of the film. The sorry. end of this film. When he says he wants to be a teacher, he wants to be a teacher. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't want to keep fighting. He doesn't want to keep proving himself. He wants to be an instructor. I think that's a great moment of showing the transformation in the character. Sorry, I thought I'd jump on the new one because it seems like they might have changed that up because in this film he's like, I'm not a teacher. I'm just trying to set expectations. It's a really funny joke. So it seems like maybe he gave up wanting to be an instructor in his storyline. He pulled line. the Luke Skywalker. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, but he got all his students killed. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> He's just on an island drinking titty milk. <laughs> now, what kind of aircraft are used in the original Top Gun? Maverick's ride is the Grumman F-14 Tomcat. It's an American carrier-capable supersonic twin-engine, two-seat, twin-tail, variable-sweep wing fighter aircraft. It can reach speeds up to 1,544 <laughs> miles per hour. What? These cost $38 million to make. Just to give you an idea of, of how large these ships are, the length of this ship, um, this aircraft is 62 feet. Height is 16 feet. Wingspan is 64 feet. Massive. Fully uh, equipped with fuel and everything. It, it weighs about 75,000 pounds. And its range is 2,400 miles. The max height and ceiling it has is 55,000 miles. I mean, wow. 55,000 feet. I'm sorry. That's a big jet. Now, this Tomcat. Going that fast. Yeah, the Tomcat was retired by the U.S. Navy on September 22, 2006, having been supplanted by the Boeing FA in Super Hornet. The, the FA 18EF Super Hornet, which the Super Hornet will be the jet that Maverick is flying in the mm. new film. And so the, the FA-18 Hornet does 1,190 miles per hour. However, it is larger and more efficient and has tripled the combat range of the F-14, which is basically why it was replaced. Even though the other one's faster and more badass, this one, it's just, it's just a better combat uh, I love I love the shot of the engines just opening up and just the fire burning it's out amazing. of it. It's so cool. It's amazing. And then the MiGs, which are like the enemy ships, it's called the MiG-28. It's it's a fictional ship, although the real ship that is used is the Northrop F-5E single seat and F-2-seat Tiger Eyes, which were just painted black, and they act as the aggressor aircrafts in Top Gun. And it's ambiguous it's what an, country yeah. they're from. You can assume it's either, I think they're originally going to go for North Korea, but it could also be the Soviet Union because it's 1986. There's that red star. We don't know what it is. Maybe some communist country. We're not sure. Um, what is Mach 2? Mach 2 is the ratio of the ratio of speed an object. I'm sorry, the ratio of the speed of an object to the speed of sound in the surrounding medium, for example, an aircraft moving twice as fast as the speed of sound is said to be traveling at Mach 2. Crazy. Which is nuts. How, how fast is the speed of sound? 560 miles per hour? Is it? Something speed like that. Speed of sound. Do, 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 do. Something hold, so, hold, please. Somewhere around hold, there. Hold, please. It's got to be like it's, uh, 343 meters per second. Which is super fast. How many is that in miles, though? Oh, let me look that up. Yeah, do miles per in hour. Miles per hour. Goddamn Americans, man. Yeah. 767 miles per hour is the speed of sound. And that's when, when you break that barrier, the sound barrier, that's when they're like poof of smoke yeah. that is like with the aircraft. It's really cool. Yeah, it happens in Man of Steel. It's really, yeah, yeah, really cool detail. Yeah, that's, that's I love when they did one that. Of, one of the best parts. Yeah. <laughs> um, also, 
Let's see, how did they film the jet's future NASA astronaut? Anthony said Scott Altman piloted the F-14 aircraft for many of the film's stunt sequences, having recently been stationed at NASA Merrimack at the time of filming. He was the one who was also seen flipping the bird in the film's well-known opening sequence of the inverted shot. And there was actually a pilot death in the making of Top Gun. Uh, renowned aerobotic, aerobotic pilot Art Scholl was hired to do in-flight camera work for the film. The original call, script called for a flat spin, which Scholl was to perform and capture on a camera on the aircraft. The aircraft was observed to spin through its recovery altitude, at which the time, at which time Scholl radioed back, "I have a problem. I have a real problem." He was unable to recover from the spin and crashed his pit special biplane into the Pacific Ocean, off Southern California, off the coast near. Carlsbad on September 16, 1985. Neither Scholl's body nor his aircraft were recovered, leaving the official cause of the accident unknown. Top Gun was dedicated to Scholl's memory. Wow. Horrible. Sad. Horrible tragedy. Um, And I think that kind of wraps up pretty much everything I was yeah. going to talk about in this. We, we went over a lot. A lot of fun episode. stuff outside of the movie, too. Yeah. Because it's fascinating. I think it's really interesting. And when all I was, this I think, like when I was a kid, I was fascinated with jets at a certain point in my life. I had like that period, like jets were super cool. Oh, drawing them. One paper. more, actually. So I have a list of celeb American celebrities who are also fighter pilots. Oh, let's hear it. So we have uh, Jimmy Stewart, which we talked about, obviously. Then also Joseph Heller, who was sent to the Italian front. He flew sixty combat missions as a B twenty five bombarder. He was uh, went on to write Catch Twenty Two. Oh, cool! <laughs> wow. Clark Gable, obviously, we know him as an actor for, as the actor from uh, Gone in the Wind. Oh, really? Clark served, Gable. He served as a, as a bomber crewman in World War Two. He flew five combat missions as an observer gunner in a B seventeen flying fortress. This is crazy. Like the average, like all these men who were sent to war back then, yeah. they're just like they're just actors. But like, oh yeah, I was I flew on a, well, on, a yeah. on a bomber, yeah. which is crazy. So many. People went to war, so then it, it makes sense that like there would be a few famous actors that did it. Like Elvis went to uh, went to war. Yeah, yeah, a ton of people did. Yeah. See Charles Brunson, uh, we all know him from the Dirty Dozen, obviously, and so many other and films. And right here, and right there, uh, uh, the Great Escape, the Great Escape. Um, in that 19... dude shredded in that movie yeah. <laughs> for no reason. He's, he's such <laughs> a manly man too. In 1943, Brunson was enlisted in the United States Army Air Forces and served as an aerial gunner in the 760th Flexible Gunnery Training Squadron. He flew 25 missions and received a Purple Heart for wounds received in battle. Wow, which is wild. Let's see, Dallas Cowboys. Uh, Coach Tom Landry earned his wings in a commission as a second lieutenant at Lubbock Airfield, and he flew 30 combat missions between 1944 and 1945. Uh, Norman Lear, who was in All in the Family, was also a pilot who flew 52 combat missions and was awarded the Air Medal. Paul Newman, best known for, obviously, Cool Hand Luke, uh, Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, was also a sailor during World War II in the Pacific Theater. He had hoped to be accepted for pilot training, but was dropped when docs discovered he was colorblind. He was redirected to boot camp and eventually flew from from aircraft carriers as a turret gunner in the Avenger torpedo bomber. He was aboard the USS Bunker Hill, Bunker Chill Kid, during the Battle of Okinawa in the spring of 1945. He missed one mission when his pilot developed an ear infection and all of those who wound up going were killed in action. Oh my God. Teddy Ballgame, Ted Williams, we all know, 
was a legendary slugger for the Boston Red Sox, and his incredible eyesight also made him a great fighter pilot for the U.S. Marine Corps. Williams earned his wings of gold at the tail end of World War II and was called back to active duty six games into the 1952 baseball season because the corps needed pilots for the Korean War effort. Williams flew 39 combat missions, and his plane was hit by enemy gunfire on at least three occasions. He was awarded three air medals before being sent home with a severe ear infection and recurring viruses, and I believe he ended up hitting 400 after that? I can't remember. If you ate, he hit it, he did it in the middle of his career. Yeah, I think he did it after he came back from war. He hit 400. But either way, that guy was one of the And great... he, for those of you who know, he, 400 average on baseball, which yeah. has never been done before. Since, since, since him. Yeah, since then. Uh, greatest hitter of all time. Uh, let's see. And then finally, Terry Dietz, before he was on... Oh, he was on the third season of Survivor. He, <laughs> he earned his wings of gold and served on the USS Carl Vinson with VF-51 flying the VF-14 Tomcat before it was retired. Very cool. Acting in a movie must be a cakewalk after going on actual missions. And in war and stuff yeah. like that, which is wild. Because you have to be incredibly... T- I think you have to be very confident to be a pilot, I'm sure. Especially mm. going these speeds. Uh, you have to be a, lot a of the, daredevil. I, mean, I believe they, they all volunteer, don't they? What to fly? to fly? Oh yeah, for yeah, sure. But nowadays, you be, but yeah, you have to be very no. I'm saying you need to like want to be able to put like, yourself. That's what in I mean. That, you have to be yourself, very confident. Yeah, I know. Yeah, put your. I'm like I want to be in that situation. Like, anyone can volunteer, kind of volunteer, but obviously, I'm sure. I'm sure most pilots have flying experience in their youth. A mm-hmm. lot of them, for sure. But and then you also have you have to have like immaculately perfect eyesight and get all the test scores and everything. You can't be right. too tall. Anyways, you got anything else to bring up? That's it, man. That wraps our. Can't flight. wait for the new one. We're actually seeing it in two days. On Wednesday, we're going to be seeing oh, Top Gun Maverick. One day, actually. Oh, it's, it's uh. Tomorrow. Oh, yeah. yes, exactly. Yeah. So it's so, the twenty fourth. Very excited to see that in IMAX. IMAX. You know it. <laughs> Had a name drop. You all better be seeing it in IMAX. Joseph Kaczynski is a very underrated director. He did Tron Legacy and also Oblivion. Can't wait to see what he does with this movie with Tommy Cruise's buddy. Unfortunately, we won't be able to review the film for y'all until we're back from our vacation, so be sure to keep an eye out for our Top Gun 2 review in the second week of June when we're back in America. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode on Top Gun. Become a patron today at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. This episode has been executive produced through Patreon by Cody Moen, Calvin Cam, John Agras, and Lauren Smertz. Wow. Thank you all being for being the chosen, the chosen one patrons wow. and helping support the show so much. We love you. Love you guys. Raiders of the Lost Podcast is a mirror image production. Sound mixing done by Jacob Kosler. Opening music by Chase Jackson. Here's to the great American settlers. The millions of you who settled for unsatisfying jobs because they pay the bills. Of course, there is something else you could do if you got something to say. Start a podcast with Spreaker from iHeart and unleash your creative freedom. Maybe even earn enough money to one day tell your old boss, Hey, I'm no settler. I'm an explorer. Spreaker.com. S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R. Hustle on over today.